Let's open our Bibles up to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, we're going to read verses 7 through 11 together. Let's stand together. It says, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain? You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Lord Jesus, we just pray, Lord, as you want to wake us up, Lord, uh, as the time is short and the coming of the Lord is at hand, you want us to be patient in our waiting and you want us to be active in our waiting, Lord. We just pray that you would, Lord, just anyone in this room that is slumbering, God, that you would just cause them to be open-eyed after today and vigilant in their walk with you. Pray that you would stir up in our hearts afresh, just a passion for the coming of the Lord Jesus that we would always be ready, Lord, that we wouldn't be ashamed at your coming. We just pray that you would do a work in your spirit today. We are so excited that you've told us you're coming, Lord, and we want to be ready. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You guys can go ahead and be seated. <coughs> Today's message is titled, Faith Perseveres Till the Coming of the Lord. Faith Perseveres Till the Coming of the Lord. You could very easily take these verses we read and do a sermon simply on patience, and that might be pretty good, but we don't want to divorce it from the context as it's included within this coming of the Lord. You know, everything that the Lord has done in the course of human history from the book of Genesis chapter 1 through Revelation chapter 22 has all been moving towards something. He has a grand purpose in mind. That he would be glorified among the nations by sending his son to die for sinful man. And one day, it's all going to come down to him ruling and reigning from his throne in Jerusalem. It's going to come down to us being with him and knowing him face to face just as we are also known. It's going to come from dwelling with him in the new heavens and the new earth and not even needing a sun or a moon because he, the lamb himself, is going to be our light. It's all culminating toward this. Everything in history, from the biggest storm to the biggest battle, from the most treacherous king to the most gracious king, it all has always been pointed to Jesus being glorified among all of the universe. History, it's been said, is his story. It's all his story. So remember that, even in your own history, even in your own life, when you look at the bad things, the tough things, the things you might even be ashamed of, the trials that you're going through right now that seem like they're never going to end, you just remember that God is on the throne. We've studied that recently. You are on your throne, the psalmist says. He's ruling. He's reigning. He's mindful of you. He knows you by name. And he's working a purpose in your life that is for his glory and is for your good. So be encouraged by that today. But let's not divorce this patience of the Lord from what his plan has always been in human history. E.G. Ladd writes in an incredible book on the resurrection of Jesus, it is a commonplace among contemporary scholars that of all the religions in the ancient world, 
only the Hebrew religion is a historical religion. Most ancient religions were essentially not sure religions built upon the recurring cycle of the seasons. The Hebrew religion was based on the confidence that God acted in history both to achieve for himself and to achieve for his redemptive purpose. Because God acted in history, he was the Lord of history and would bring history to the kingdom of God. And as we study the coming of the Lord, him coming and ruling and reigning and drawing his people to himself to be part of that kingdom, realize that this is what he's been about from the beginning to the end. That's why he says in the book of Revelation, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I'm the beginning and the end and everything in between. And so our text today in James chapter 5, verse 7 says, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. James has been cut and dried pretty much this whole book, but as we come to the conclusion of this letter, he seems to be getting even more cut and dry. He just says a whole lot of do this, do this, don't do this, and don't do that. That's a struggle for us as New Testament Christians. It's a struggle with us as a church as we want to be a gospel-centered, Christ-centered church, something we know in, in our Bible studies and how to interpret the scriptures and how to preach the word of God is that we never want to just tell people to do stuff. That can develop very quickly into moralism and false religiosity. As you read the scripture, you see that when the Lord tells us to do something, he always precedes it with, look what God has done for you. They're called redemptive indicatives. He's indicated in the Bible. I don't have my Bible with me. I do have my Bible. It's not paper one. Okay, so chill. Okay. Every time in the scripture, he's shown us his love for us, his pursuit of us, his laying down of his life for us, his shedding of his blood so that we could be forgiven of our sins and washed pure from our sins and purchased away from our sins off that auction block of slavery to sin. Then he sent the Holy Spirit to empower us to live a different life that's had changed affections, not because of something we've done, but because of what he has done for us. Whenever we're asked, hey, are you saved or do you have an assurance of salvation or how do you know you're a Christian? I challenge you today to never begin your answer with, well, I've done this or I said this prayer or I attended this camp, this conference, this retreat or this evangelical crusade. It always starts with I and that's never good. You start your answers with he. He has done this for me. He has redeemed me and the Bible shown me how. I rest in that. I rest in what he has done. I think it's on Christ the solid rock I stand that has an incredible lyric about that. <coughs> Excuse me. And so as we get to this doing book and this very shoe leather Christianity, as we get to these statements that are don't do this, don't do that, and here be patient, we're going to see that Jesus is the one who's clothed in patience. Be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 5 tells us as we push into this Bible study and examine the coming of the Lord and what will it look like and when will it happen and should we really be waiting, Peter tells us that scoffers will come in the last days. I believe that we're living in the last days. And if you just look around, there's a whole lot of scoffers. I can't believe that you think Jesus is coming back. You believe in the rapture of the church? Pashah. All right. It's mockers and scoffers. They'll walk around in their own lusts and they'll say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. 
Don't you ever hear that? Nothing's changed. 2,000 years have gone by since Jesus has been here and he hasn't come back. You really think he's going to come back? Chapter 3 of 2 Peter, verses 8 and 9 say, But beloved, do not forget this one thing that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Man, as we're called by James to be patient in our waiting for the Lord, we're told also here that Jesus is patient. The Father is patient kind of holding off and tearing to bring about the day of the Lord, pouring out his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting world in a seven-year tribulation period that's like nothing the world has ever seen before. And setting up that time of judgment, he's patient. He's not willing that anyone should perish. He's not a slacker. He's just patient. And is there anybody here that is bummed out that God is not patient? Is there anybody that wishes that he would have come five years ago, 10 years ago? I wish he would have come 20 years ago when I wasn't a Christian. That would have been real good. I'm glad that, I mean, we have so many people in our church right now that are just coming out of the miry pit of sin. And the Lord has just pulled them out of that just quicksand of death and has set them upon the rock and put a new song in their heart, even in the last year. I'm so thankful that he didn't come last year. Because these people who are in the pit may be hell-bound. Maybe in the midst of a great tribulation period. Thank you, God, for your mercy. Thank you, God, that you're long-suffering and that you're patient. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10, as this Peter epistle goes on, explains to us what that day will look like when the Lord comes. It, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, <laughs> that means you would never expect when it would happen. In which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so we're told by Peter what kind of this culmination of this day will look like. And there will be a purifying effect on the, on the earth that's actually from fire. One time he judged the world through a flood. And here we see he'll judge the world through a fire. And he says, because we know that that's going to be happening we will be living a life of godly, holy conduct. That's something that having an expectation of the coming of the Lord produces in us. John tells us that he who has this hope in himself purifies himself just as he is pure. We purify ourselves knowing that the Lord could come back any second and begin establishing his kingdom and pouring out his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting world. 2 Peter 3.14 says, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless. When we have an eye that's always set on the heavens that he is coming back at any moment, he's coming to get us at any moment, 
will be diligent to be found blameless, spotless in holy conduct, living in godliness, found by him in peace, without spot and blameless. We need to be patient with his time frame and when he plans to come to get us. The illustration here is a patient farmer. A patient farmer, just trusting the Lord that the rains will come. That's just something that's completely out of their hands. Like, I can't sprinkle enough, Lord. You need to sprinkle. You know, we live in a, in a drought season. The reservoirs are low. I was just at Lake Shasta. I mean, California is freaking out right now. And it's, it's up to the Lord. Lord, we trust you to bring the waters. And it speaks here of an early rain and a latter rain. Some believe that to be speaking of the early pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon the church in the Pentecostal day of Acts chapter 2. But some believe that there's actually speaking of a, a latter rain, a latter pouring out of the Holy Spirit before the coming of the day of the Lord. I don't know. I've read good cases for both sides, but I will say it feels like the Lord is pouring out his spirit on us right now for, the, for these purposes. For the purposes that we'll see by the end of today's study, it's moving things towards his kingdom by his power, by his boldness, and by his courage. We're told again in verse 8, you also be patient. The farmer's patient, I mean, just talking to Adam Barney lately, and he's, you know, it's really cool to watch him. He's starting to kind of branch out and, and do his own farming. His dad has a farm, and he's worked for his dad for so many years, and he still works for his dad. Now he's kind of doing, he's getting his plot of land. He's got his cattle, and he's just growing up. Uh, Thousand Hills Cattle Company is what it's called. Is he here? Okay, good. I think he's teaching back there. Okay, I didn't want to embarrass him. Now, Mark, on the other hand, <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> So Thousand Years Hills Cattle Company, and, and, and Adam came up to me last week, and he's just like, like beating his head against the wall out there by the door of the church, and he's just like, man, I planted these carrots, and oh, we've done carrots on my dad's farm forever, very profitable, lucrative crop, yields so well, I've got these carrots, and they're just not growing right, I've got Canadian thistles just growing up all over this field, I don't even know what to do, like, the only thing I can think of practically is go around with Roundup and squirt every thistle. I'm going to destroy my whole crop doing that. I just got to trust the Lord. I just gotta, and he's just, you can see him like working through it as he's talking. He's like, all I can do is trust the Lord. That's all I can do. In the same way, that's all we can do. Trusting the Lord, being patient on the Lord. He's a hardworking farmer. The farmer, while he's waiting for his crop, he's not being lazy, being diligent, being about the business he's supposed to be about. And we also are to be patient. Verse 8 says we need to establish our hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And so this idea of understanding that the coming of the Lord, he's coming, he will be here soon, we'll see him face to face soon. That's what at hand speaks of. It's like, okay, I know I messed up the other day with the whole hand breath thing. Apparently people were Googling it and the word's not hand breath. It's hand breath, whatever, okay. But here we have, coming of the Lord is at hand. Can I at least get that? Like, it's close. Come on, people. I went to welding school at Lynn Benton Community College. Give me a little bit of... The coming of the Lord is at hand. So we need to be establishing our hearts. We need to be strengthening our inner man. And this is something that you need to do. This is something that is your responsibility. The opposite of that is just being lazy. The opposite of that is being a wanderer. And this speaks of being strengthened in the Lord. 
And nearly every time in the New Testament that this phrase, strengthen your inner man or establish your heart is used, it's used in speaking in context to the coming of the Lord. In 1 Thessalonians 3, 12 through 13, it says, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. And so a firm strengthening of our heart, blameless, blamelessness will follow that, holiness will follow that as we're looking for the coming of the Lord. And you might note here for later on in our study that that coming will be with all his saints. Well, how did we get with him before his coming? We'll get into that in just a little bit. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16 through 19, there's a prayer from Paul to the Ephesian church where he says that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. So something that we pray for you, something that we pray for this church, a strengthening with might through the spirit in the inner man. What does it look like to be strengthened? Christ dwelling in your heart through faith. That you being rooted and grounded, doesn't that just speak of being established? Rooted, grounded, like the mighty oak tree that the wind just can't toss in love. That you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. One of my favorite commentaries has one of the worst titles for a book ever. Commentary, critical, and explanatory on the whole Bible. I wish they would change the name of that so I could be like, hey, the really cool comment. Okay, anyway, here's what the really cool commentary says from the 1800s. Nothing can more establish the heart amidst present troubles than the realized expectation of his speedy coming. Do you want to establish your heart today? I like that, as you can tell, I'm sure. Are you going through trials? Or is the Lord telling you, hey, be long-suffering right now? I know it's tough. Be patient. I'm coming back. Establish your heart today. Be rooted and grounded in love. Know Christ. That's what establishing the heart means, to know Christ. Let him work in you blamelessness and holiness and get your eyes on the heavens because he's coming back. That'll make you be rooted and grounded in love. I'll tell you what, there's a few things in my life that have just motivated me and pushed me on in my walk with Christ since I was about 14 years old. I should say even younger than that. And that is the imminent return of Jesus Christ. That he says he will come back when we least expect it. He's going to come back when we're not expecting it. He's going to come back at any moment. And he can come back at any moment. And the reason I said it could have been younger than that is I specifically remember talking with someone on the school bus in second grade about Jesus is coming back. He's coming back soon. It's going to be a moment when we're least expecting it. I remember that as a kid. Always being on my heart. Even as a youth pastor, eight years teaching a bunch of teenagers, and regularly we would do eschatology. Regularly we, would, we taught through the book of Revelation, verse by verse. We did camps on the coming of the Lord. We went through the book of Daniel. We spent time camping out in Daniel chapter 9, just thick with incredible end times prophecy. And these kids grew up knowing that Jesus 
could come back at any second. And he's calling me to watch, he's calling me to wait, and he's calling me to be about his business. And my sister's visiting my, with my brother-in-law, and we served in youth ministry together for quite a while. And just last night at dinner, we were talking about just the handfuls of kids from that time in ministry that are now serving the Lord in ministries. They're either missionaries, or they've gone off to be missionaries with their husbands, or they're, they're um, serving on staff at churches, or they're on the real-life college staff. They're serving in maintenance capacities at Calvary Chapel. Just like, just naming names and just thinking of all these names. By the grace of God, just disciples were made during that eight-year youth period. But all the time, those kids were focusing on, we cannot be lazy. We've got to be the hard-working farmers, laboring till the coming of the day of the Lord. For the coming of the Lord, it is at hand. Now, when we speak of the coming of the Lord, <coughs> we kind of speak of a few different things. And so you have to look at the context of what you're reading to really know what's being spoken about. When we speak of this, the coming of the Lord today, we're speaking of the second coming of Jesus. Okay, the second coming of Jesus. Now, there was a first coming of Jesus when he came and took on flesh, clothed himself in flesh, draped himself in flesh. As Isaiah says, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. And then Jesus goes out in his body and becomes a baby and lives among men for 33 years, living a perfect life and dying a sinner's death, loving on mankind and working miracles, but showing that he's God. That was his first coming. His first coming, he came as a suffering servant. He came... People thought he was Jeremiah reincarnated because he was the weeping prophet. He came, as Isaiah 53 says, not with any form or comeliness or beauty that we should desire him because he's just a total stud muffin, six-pack ripped abs, cruising around, and everyone's like, I want to follow that guy. It wasn't anything just external. He didn't just, you know, vibe off like leadership like a Roman general would have or something like that. He came in that time as a suffering servant. As Mark 10, 45 says, he came not so people would serve him, but so that he would serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That's what the first coming was about. Laying down his life. Dying a death that he should have never had to die. That's the first coming. Now, the second coming of Jesus. Jesus is coming as a ruling king. He comes victorious over his adversaries. While in the first coming, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, was born in a manger in obscurity. The second coming, he's riding on a white horse, a stallion, followed by the host of heaven also riding on stallions. Okay? It's a different coming. And in this coming, the second coming, he will judge the world and take his rightful place on the throne of David in Jerusalem. And that coming is soon. It's close. It's drawing near. David Guzik writes, One might say that since the ascension of Jesus, history has been brought to the brink of consummation and now runs parallel alongside the edge of the brink with the coming of the Lord being at hand. If you will, it's almost like 5,000 years, or excuse me, let's see, what was it? So we're saying about 4,000 years of human history, all of the Old Testament. It was like you're speeding through the desert. You know those speedy 
race cars will just go in the desert. You see it on the car commercials. Okay? That's, I didn't write this down in case you're wondering. Totally didn't prepare. Okay. This thing's speeding along just 4,000 years. All right? Human history, the course of history. Then Jesus comes. And from the time of Jesus' ascension, the New Testament refers to everything after as, <coughs> excuse me, the latter days. And it even can call it the end times. Joel chapter 2 is quoted by Peter on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit's poured out, people are speaking in tongues, people are prophesying. Peter refers to that time that they're in as like end times stuff. So it's almost like that race car going through the desert just comes all the way up to this cliff that's been waiting there forever. And everything past that cliff, it's the day of the Lord. It's all this end time stuff. And so for the last 2,000 years, it's almost like that car took a right-hand turn and is now running parallel with the day of the Lord. Like any second, the Lord's just going to say the word and he's going to kick us off into this incredible time of human history known as the day of the Lord. The day where God judges a Christ-rejecting world. The day where God redeems and, and brings his bride up into the home that he's been preparing for him. The day that he comes as king and sets up his kingdom upon this world. So we're living, just driving, driving riding parallel to what history has been leading up to. We're going to do a, a scripture reading right now from Matthew 24. And I hope you'll be patient. I just felt like the Lord would have us read this together as a church because Jesus can say it better than I ever could. Now, as we read Matthew 24, we come to two chapters, Matthew 24 and 25. We won't read 25 today. I'll have mercy on you guys. It's called the Olivet Discourse, okay? It's where Jesus goes on the Mount of Olives and he explains when the end days will happen and what will be the signs of these things coming to pass, okay? This is the Olivet Discourse. And as I've spent a lot of time just pulling every verse apart, pulling every verse apart, even understanding some other views on eschatology and trying to just make sense of this, even one guy who's not necessarily a, a hardcore pre-trib rapture guy or something, Alistair Begg, he says you've got to note when you're reading this that there's a telescoping nature in this text, okay? We're going to be reading this sometimes, and he's, and he's talking about the tribulation period, okay? It's a seven-year period where God is pouring out his wrath like never before on this world. This world is rocked. You do not want to be here during that time. Jesus will tell you that. Then there's other times where it's like he's, he's, he's zoomed in a little bit, and he's talking about what's happening in the tribulation. Then he zooms out a little bit, and he's speaking of the second coming of Jesus. And then he kind of zooms in and talks about the rapture of the church for a little bit. And so, and so see if you can kind of get it, the telescoping nature of the text and what he's referring to. But let's let Jesus speak for himself here. Matthew 24. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So what Jesus is going to do in this discourse is he's going to tell when these things will be and what are the signs of his coming. Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you. 
For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginnings of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. And he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who's on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house, and let him who's on the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in the winter or in the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he's in the inner room, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes in the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. We'll read the rest of the chapter in just a little bit, but the signs of the times and, and Jesus kind of gives what's called the birth pangs, what it's, what's going to be leading up to the coming of the Lord. Uh, years ago in about 2010, we did in-depth studies of um, the Olivet Discourse. We've taught the book of Daniel chapter 9. And you can get on our website and listen to those studies. We've done in-depth research as to uh, you know, what's happening here with all these natural disasters and famines and pestilences and wars going on. And we've seen that in history, these things have been increasing, increasing, increasing. So much so that where we were at just a couple months ago had one of the biggest earthquakes the world has seen in a while. And the Himalaya mountains were actually lowered three feet by such, a, by such an earthquake. Uh, and so there's incredible studies on the amount of people who've died in warfare in, the, in, in this last century compared to all centuries past. And so we just see, you know, kind of what's leading up to what's going to bring about Jesus's coming. Uh, we see that uh, the Son of Man will appear in heaven, this last verse we read in verse 30. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and great glory. Zechariah writes about this in chapter 12 and in chapter 14. But in chapter 12, he writes in verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. 
And so really the period right before Jesus comes back is a time that God is using to get a hold of Israel. He's, he's kind of disciplining them and chastening them and trying to get their attention. And finally, he begins to get Israel's attention. And when he finally comes back, as he's coming down in the clouds, Israel will look upon Jesus. And notice the very prophetic language. This is written hundreds of years before Jesus came. They will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. The Jews who killed Jesus, along with me, I killed him too. It was my sin that held him there. But the Jews that killed Jesus there in Jerusalem will realize on this day, we killed the Messiah. He came. He loved us. He was doing miracles. He was validating himself. He even rose from the dead. But we hardened our hearts against him and we murdered him. And they will mourn for their sin against him. Matthew 24 goes on in, in uh, verse 31. <clears throat> he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other, different things of what that might be considered there, but my personal opinions is we've been in heaven with the Lord for seven years, worshiping him before his throne, and now it's go time. We all get our white horses saddled up, okay? Verse 32, now learn this parable from the fig tree. In prophecy, the fig tree is always representative of the nation of Israel. When its branch has already become tender and put forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things takes place. When you study prophecy, when you look at Daniel chapter 9, you see that all of the things that we're talking about here, it's for Israel. It's to get a hold of Israel. It's to wake them up to their Messiah. It's for Jerusalem. It's for the holy city. It's so that atonement might be brought to the people of Israel. Uh, Daniel chapter 9, uh, this, the prophecy of the 70 weeks begins that way, that it's for Israel. And here we see that when Israel has put forth leaves and has become ripe, know that the time of the Lord has come. Now, if you were living in the last, uh, you know, really since 70 AD up until this last century, you might be confused by all this and be thinking, you know what, Israel is not even around, you know, just like, man, all this must be just allegory or something, but he's not coming. Until May 14th, 1948, when a group of people who've been exiled since 70 AD was brought back and their nation was made a nation again. Israel became a nation in May 14th, 1948. And it's been said that it was that day that it was like the prophecy watch uh, started again. And it says that whatever generation sees that, that leaves come forth out of this nation, they won't pass away before the coming of the Lord. We don't know the day or the hour, but we know it'll be within this generation. That could mean a few different things, but I always get encouraged because my Aunt Diane was born on D-Day, 1944. And so I always think of like, that being her generation, you know, she has passed away from leukemia, but she still could have had some life left. And it just goes to show possibly, just possibly, how near the coming of the Lord is. That generation is still alive, but, but perhaps what Jesus is saying is that this generation that saw Israel come in, man, I'm coming back before they're off this earth. How exciting is that? That shows us how soon he could be coming. He goes on to say, of that day and hour, nobody knows. 
Not even the angels in heaven, but my Father only. As the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Very comparable to the days of Noah these days. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage, until the day of Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. And here's where I believe it kind of telescopes out to like a rapture picture. Then two man will be, men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, and one will be taken and the other left. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over all his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he's not looking for him and in an hour when he's not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So something you repeatedly see within this Olivet Discourse is Jesus is telling the disciples, watch, watch. This is something that marked the early churches. They were always watching and waiting for the coming of the Lord. Verse 42 says, watch. Verse 43 says, watch. Verse 44 says, he's coming in an hour you don't expect. And just as Peter says that in the end times, scoffers will come, saying that the Lord delays his coming, Jesus says that it's evil servants who say in his Lord, he's not coming back. He's not coming back. Why would that be wickedness? Because the New Testament tells us when we are constantly looking for Jesus' return, we will be living lives of holiness, purity, and godliness. Matthew 25, also in the Olivet Discourse, verse 13, Jesus says, Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour when the Son of Man is coming. And so we've seen the first coming of Jesus, and we realize that the second coming of Jesus, well, well, the first was Jesus setting his feet and walking around this earth, so too the second coming will be Jesus coming and setting his feet down on this earth and walking around this earth. But there's something that sometimes we misspeak and, and speak of the coming of the Lord, and we kind of telescope in and out when we speak of the rapture of the church. We see this rapture of the church in 1 Thessalonians 4, Verse 15, uh, the Thessalonians were being lied to by people saying that they had missed the rapture, that the resurrection had already taken place and that they were actually living in the kingdom of God. And the people are looking around going like, this does not appear to be everything we've hoped for. And so 1 Thessalonians 4.15 says, this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Okay, so we get a little bit of order here in 1 Thessalonians 4, he's, he's telling us the resurrection, okay? We are going to be resurrected one day. I don't know if you know that. A lot of times people think that heaven is just going to be like, we're like floating around like, I don't know what that is, jellyfish or something, you know? <laughs> you know what? The Greeks believed in an afterlife. There was nothing special about that. But when Paul preached on the resurrection from the dead, they laughed at him. That's what's special about Jesus and God is that 
Jesus rose from the dead as the first one of us that's going to do it. We will rise from the dead, whether you're cremated or buried at sea and the sea creatures got you and then spread you all over the... doesn't matter. God created you from dust and he's going to have no problem taking your body and transforming it into glory, into a glorified body at this resurrection. And so Paul gives us a little bit of order of things. So when the rapture happens, in a split second, everyone who's died in Christ before us, they will be resurrected. Their bodies will be resurrected. Okay, that will happen. But then it also says, uh, verse uh, 16, the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God. So this shout, it's going to be like a trumpet blast. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. So this has all happened so fast. And, and for some reason, the Lord just wants us to know that the people who died before us, their bodies will be resurrected, meeting them, uh, and we'll just, you know, almost synonymously, but they're first, okay? Um, then it goes on to say that uh, we will meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. This is a very comforting thing, this idea that God is coming to take us to the clouds. So sometimes when we speak of the coming of the Lord, we're talking of him just coming to the clouds, okay? He's not going to come all the way to the earth at this point. The rapture of the church, he's just coming to the clouds. We will meet him in the clouds. We will be caught up. And that's where we get our word rapture. Many people say the word rapture isn't in the Bible, so it's not true. Well, the word trinity isn't in the Bible, but it's a biblical principle. The word rapture in, in well, we, where we have caught up here is where we get this word. In the Greek, it's harpazo, and in the Latin, it's raptus. And that word raptus sounds like a dinosaur with the big claw in the middle. It's not that one. Watch out for the rabbitor. Um, the rapture, the harpazo, the catching up of the Christians to meet the Lord in the air and to be gathered together with the saints. Paul tells the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 15, I tell you a mystery... All right, we shall not all sleep. He's like, I'm going to let you in on a little something. Not everybody's going to die. Kind of crazy, huh? Not everybody's going to die. We shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Remember, we just read about the, the Lord will come with the voice of an archangel, with a shout, like a trumpet, like the trumpet of God. In a moment, the trumpet will sound the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall all be changed. And this will all happen lickety-split, in the twinkling of an eye. It's been estimated that the human eye twinkles ten times before consecutive blinks. Sandy Adams laughingly said, the eye does three things, the wink, the blink, and the twink. A twinkle is a reflected particle of light seen in the eye and thusly travels at the speed of light, 983,571,000 feet per second. This is an infinitely small fraction of a second. So it would be fair to say that a twinkle occurs in about a billionth of a second. And that may be just how fast this catching up, this harpazo lasts. Now in Revelation chapter 1 verse 19, we have John the Revelator and he has this vision of Jesus. And Jesus lays out what's called in Revelation 1.19, I think John Corson called it this, the divine outline, okay? 
the outline of the whole book of Revelation is seen in chapter 1, verse 19. It says, Jesus says, write the things which you have seen, John, and then the things which are and the things which will take place after this. And this is kind of like an outline of the 22 chapters of the book of Revelation. In chapter 1, John has seen Jesus. That's something John always talked about in his epistles, in his gospels. I have seen Jesus. I'm an eyewitness. And in chapter 1, he sees Jesus. He writes about what he's seen. Then there's this period of things that are. It's, it's chapter 2 and 3, the church, the letters to the churches, the letters to the seven churches. And when you study those letters, it's incredible that, yes, they were written to specific churches, historical churches. But also, these churches, when put together, kind of create like a panoramic picture of church history. Everything from the early church of Ephesus that's called Darling, who so quickly left her first love, to the persecuted church, to the Roman Catholic church, to the, to the set-on-fire church, to the lukewarm church in the last days. It's kind of like this, you know, panoramic pictures, right, on your iPhone? That's almost like what John has done, Jesus has done in chapter 2 and 3 of Revelation. He shows us the church age, the church age from, uh, from uh, Jesus' ascension up until this point of the end days in chapters two and three of revelation you have 19 times that the word church is used church 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 you do the math okay then we have chapter four verse one where something interesting happens after these things or perhaps you could say after the church age the letters to the churches church church after these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. The first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. Just kind of interesting in the outline of this book, how you have the church age, very pictorial of the whole history of the church. And then you have this moment in chapter four where there's a door standing open in heaven. The trumpet that we read about in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15 the trumpet voice says, come up here. I believe what we have is like a picture, a prophetic rapture of the church happening here. And then we have everything that will happen after that. What happens after the rapture of the church? Chapters four and five of Revelation, where you have people who are called elders, but could only be the redeemed. They're people who say, you have redeemed us from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And they worship God for his sacrifice. They worship Jesus as the lamb who was slain. And there's this incredible worship time in heaven. Then chapter 6 through 19 is this seven-year period of the tribulation. Okay? And, and the church isn't mentioned at all during that period until we see in Revelation chapter 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb, where the bride is there in her white clothing. And there's this supper right before they all hop on their white ponies and come back to the earth for Jesus to establish his kingdom. That's a little bit of a rough timeline for you of what one position is among many. It's the position that I seem to understand. And I admit there's a lot of guys smarter than me that have under, other takings on it. So try not to be dogmatic on it. It's just in all the studying I've done, this is, this is the outline that I see that the Lord has for us in our patient waiting that he's coming to get us. He hasn't appointed his church, his bride, his sheep, his body to wrath the Bible says. He hasn't appointed us to that. He took all of his wrath. He's appointed us to 
eternal life with him, always being with the Lord. Well, <coughs> I feel like I'm drowning up here for more reasons than one. Chapter 5, verse 9 of our text today says, Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Seems like James is almost like, like you're talking about the day of the Lord and being patient, and then you're talking about quick gossiping, and you've been on that a lot, James. What's that about? This also is with the second coming in mind. The judge is standing at the door. The coming of the Lord is so at hand that Jesus the judge is standing at the door. I always, you know, with my military history mind, I always think of those airborne troopers, you know, going to jump out of the plane and they're standing there at the door and there's that little jump light there. It's on red right now, but when it turns to green, it's time to pile out of the plane and the sun is just there. He's waiting for the father to say, it's time. It's time. Well, let's look at Revelation chapter 19, where we're going to read of this second coming of Jesus, okay? This is at the end of this story, or approaching the end of this story. It starts out with the marriage supper of the Lamb. The bride of Christ is there with him. The church is there with him. It says, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saint. And he says to me, right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the lamb. In verse 11, we have the second coming. Now I say... I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of God Almighty. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Remember in Acts chapter 1 when Jesus ascended and all the disciples are sitting there looking up into heaven, watching him go up. And then finally two men appeared and said, you guys, what are you doing sitting there staring? Didn't he give you something to do? In the same manner that he went up, so he's also going to be coming down. And here we see coming out of heaven, riding on his horse, riding in victory with a sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. His words are able to just strike the armies that would rise against him at this time, kind of the battle of Armageddon scene. And he's able to just smite everybody, all of his enemies there. And Zechariah chapter 14 says that he will come down out of heaven and he will set his feet on the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives there in Jerusalem will split in half north to south and a spring of water will bubble up out of this mountain and half of it will flow over to the west to the mediterranean sea making a river over to the east as well to the dead sea where nothing has lived there since the days of sodom and gomorrah it is desert i've been there many times and there's the dead sea out there that's got 30 times the salt water of the ocean nothing lives in there it's dead you can float on it because there's so much wa water or salt out there it's either that or my fat concentration in my body. I don't know, but might be both. 
But Zechariah says that just this fountain, when the Lord comes back and sets his feet, will split this, and this water will bring life and make this like a well-watered garden again. His kingdom will be one of, of, of plentiful bounty and of paradise. As he comes down, all of those people, all those Jews who are beginning to follow him at the latter part of the tribulation, they will look on him who they've pierced, and they will mourn, saying, we were the ones that killed you. Matthew 25 says that then he'll come and he will judge those. He will judge those who took care of Israel. They're called sheep. He will judge those that neglected Israel. They're called goats. Verse 11 of our text today says, Indeed, we count them blessed to endure. We, we look at the prophets. We count them blessed to endure. We, too, need to have the same patience of the prophets because he is coming back soon. As we're closing here, remember back in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, verse 14, Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations and then the end will come. You know, I taught Revelation quite a few times. The book of Revelation did camps and retreats on that or I taught it. I've taught the school of ministry about four years in a row. In eight hours, I would have to teach the whole book of Revelation to these students. And one year, a, a student said to me, hey, um, so why does Matthew 24, 14 say that the gospel has to be preached unto all nations before the end will come? Like, like you're saying Jesus is coming back at any second, but has the gospel been preached to every nation? And at the time, my understanding was that well, Mexico has heard about Jesus, and Canada has heard about Jesus, and about all the other 22 sovereign nations have heard about Jesus. So, and yet, Jesus hasn't come yet. And just in this last year, God has just done a work in us, showing us his heart for the nations. That out of the 7 billion people, group, uh, people in this world, there are 11,000 people groups, different nations, different families that all have different languages, different cultures, and these languages are barriers to the gospel getting from one culture to another. 11,000 people groups. Out of the 11,000 people groups, only 5,000 of them have ever heard about Jesus, have been making disciples and being discipled. Only, you know, only less than half have, have come to know Jesus. And then there's 6,000 of that 11,000 that are unreached, which means there's less than 2% Christian in those people groups. There's no active indigenous church planting work or discipleship going on in those groups. And then half of that unreached people groups, some 3,000, are called unengaged unreached, which means there is no effort whatsoever to get the gospel to these people. Jesus hasn't come back yet. Maybe it's because our work is not yet done. Because the commission says, go and preach the gospel to every nation. Not just the 200 sovereign nations that have presidents and kings right now, but every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. We just praise God and we are so humbled that he has called us as a church to be going to Nepal. We're out of 342 people groups in that one tiny, tiny little country. Only nine have ever heard of Jesus. And he's linked us up with a group, an organization that has their vision. If they can in their lifetime, there's 40 people groups there that are high up in the Himalayans, the Tibetan people who are so lost. 
There's 40 different people groups in those Himalaya mountains that have never even heard the name Jesus. And God has been calling our church to go and to help them to know. It's an exciting thing to think as we study eschatology. I still believe in the imminent, imminent return of Jesus. As George Ladd says, God alone knows the definition of terms. He's the only one that knows. I cannot precisely define who all the nations are, but I do not need to know. I know only one thing. Christ has not yet returned, therefore the task is not yet done. When it is done, Christ will come. My responsibility is not to insist on defining the term. My responsibility is to complete the task. So long as Christ does not return, our work is undone. Let us get busy and complete our mission. We've got work to do. This week, we've got work to do. Revelation, the very last chapter, chapter 22, Jesus says three different times. In verse 7, he says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the prophecy of this or the words of the prophecy of this book. In verse 12, again, he says, Behold, I am coming quickly. And in verse 22, Surely I am coming quickly. I'm coming quickly. Hey Amen. Just a, a message that God has just, since my youth, caused me to trumpet. Is let's get our eyes looking up, people. Let's get our eyes looking up for his coming. And when we are waiting his return, we will be about our father's business. We won't have time for living in filthy immorality, impurity. A heart that's looking up will be living in, in holiness and blamelessness. We'll be faithful stewards of the talents that he has entrusted to us. So let's get our eyes up today. Whether you're a pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, whatever, Christian, everyone would say, hey, He's going to rapture us, and it's coming soon. You know, I, I've been, the Lord has humbled me and taken me down a few notch over the last few years. You know, some of my favorite preachers that I listen to, you know, don't hold the same eschatological view as I do. And I still stand where I stand, but I understand there's guys that love Jesus a whole lot that are a whole lot smarter than me that understand the order of things differently. And so this is our distinction as a church is that we will teach a, a pre-tribulation rapture that he's coming back for his bride before he pours out his wrath upon the earth. But we're not unduly dogmatic. We say that with humility. Billy Graham said, hey, I pray for a pre-trib rapture, but I prepare for post. And another man said, hey, I'm not opposed to changing my position in midair. <laughs> it's like, well, all right. It's all right, huh? Let's, let's live our life with that type of humility. One professor said the millennium is the 1,000-year period of peace that everyone feels they have to fight about. You know, I don't, I don't want to fight with anybody about it. I just, let's just love Jesus, huh? Let's look. He's coming quickly. You know, let's change our positions midair. If we're looking at Jerusalem and the temple's been rebuilt and the Antichrist is there declaring himself to be God, then okay, I was wrong. It might be a mid-trib rapture, whatever. But he's coming quickly. Let's patiently await his return, being about his business. Amen? Amen. Was that like drinking out of a fire hose for you today? So much eschatology, I'm drowning. Let's stand. We're going to prepare our hearts for communion and worshiping the Lord together.